1, 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll talk about this living hope that we have, uh, hopefully for, well I hope until Christmas actually, and then uh, celebrate that living hope at Christmas together, which I don't know if you know this, but Christmas is uh, my absolute favorite time of the year. Besides elk season, but they kind of go together, and so uh, so. Anyways, I'll pray to pray for us as we begin studying together. Lord Jesus, thank you for time to gather. Thank you for time to sing corporately together, to think about the living hope that we have in in Jesus. To think about the grave being conquered. Think about the blood of Jesus covering sin and sin being erased so that we might be clothed in righteousness. God, and as Zach prayed earlier, as we think about the brokenness of this world and the sin that so often shows up, God, how we long for you, how we long for you to make things right. God, how we have a longing to be with you for eternity, a longing for heaven to be on earth, a longing for Christ to be exalted. A longing for sin no longer as it seems to reign. So God help us stir in us that we as believers, the ones that are in this room, God might be encouraged today by your words God that we might be filled with hope this morning we might be filled with peace and grace from you in Jesus name I pray Amen First Peter we're going to be in First Peter for a while there's five chapters in First Peter and we're going to break these down and study them together and when I say that we're going to be them for a while uh, we're going to study just the first two verses this morning because they're so uh, kind of theologically thick or there's so much to, to talk about just in these first two verses there are many um, just things to think through uh, like the doctrine of adoption, the Trinity. Uh, there's uh, things like sanctification. There's things like uh, obedience to Christ. Uh, there's things like uh, being a part of the dispersion or being exiles or doctrine of election. All these types of things within these first two verses are the foreknowledge of God even uh, that oftentimes become fearful as we study it. And so this morning, my hope is this, that we would definitely have hope. I want us to, uh, for the next several weeks, think about how hope should always be uh, be followed by a comma, not a period. So uh, so hope says that, hey, there's more to come. This is not the end. And so with that, I, I don't want to put a length of time on this series. Instead, I want to just fill you with hope this morning that as we begin studying First Peter, who cares how long it takes? If it takes till 2020, so it takes till 2020, right? We don't want to look towards the end necessarily. We want to be filled with hope instead. And so as we begin studying this, my, my hope is this, um, particularly this morning, that the grace, as, as Peter wrote to us, that grace and peace might be multiplied in us and that we might be sent people from this place proclaiming the excellencies, proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. So 
we need to understand that this is not just a, a letter of good advice. It's not like a letter from my grandmother who gave me good advice on how to marry someone uh, and what they should look like. You know, hey, this is what your future bride should look like or how she should act or any of those things. It's not just a, a letter of good advice, but we have to understand that these are words from the Lord, from the Creator God, from our Heavenly Father to His church. They're not just good advice that we should read and say, yeah, maybe that makes sense at a certain particular time in history. But instead we look at this as words from God, breathed out by him. Peter and his, his partner are writing these things down for the church that we might follow in obedience to what God has, has directed us to. And so as we read these things, that's why I say like we can just break down two verses and hear from the Lord because they're, they are His, they are His words. I joked and said if you've been reading along, uh, Galatians 6.11 should be uh, a memory verse of, of all of ours so that when your kids particularly do something wrong, you can text them or write a letter to them and say, uh, you know, hey, I'm quoting to you Galatians 6.11. That just says, see with which large letters I'm writing to you. See how it's in bold. See how it's uppercase, Brian, so that you may see it and understand it. So we want to say all these words are breathed out from God and we can trust in them. And so as we read these verses together and as we read through First Peter together, we're not just looking at, at this as good advice to apply to our life and say at some point I'm going to put this into practice, but instead we see that these are words from God to his to his church. It's a pastoral letter. It seeks to encourage and reassure the Christian churches during a stormy season of persecution. I don't know if you've ever been persecuted for your faith, but I would suspect that at some point in your life you're going to be because Jesus says that his followers will be persecuted, that you will face suffering. So if you've yet to face suffering as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, you can anticipate that it will come. And so what do you do during that time? Well, we turn to God's word so that we can be encouraged by it, so that we can be reassured by it, that during this stormy season, or during this time of suffering, that Christ is still reigning. We need to know that in light of what happened yesterday in, in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio. We need to know that God is still in control, that he knows the things that are happening, that despite the suffering that's going on in the world, we can still trust in his promises. And not just abstractly or far away, but even in your own life, when things aren't going the way that you anticipated for them to go or expected them to go, then we can say, surely God and his promises, he will keep his promises. Surely God knows what's going on, and I can trust in his sovereignty. And even during this time of suffering, however large or small it may seem, I can still trust that God is in that God is in control. So this book should remind us that no Christian will escape suffering while in this broken world, and that our deepest needs should drive us to our deepest beliefs. I'll say that again. That while we're in this broken world suffering, it should drive us to a point that our deepest needs, where we're recognizing those, are helping us to grow into our deepest beliefs. And that is why in these first two verses, as Peter is just introducing himself, or as he's just saying hello to the churches dispersed throughout minor Asia or Asia Minor, throughout Turkey, he's writing to these churches and in, these, in his introduction or his, his hello statement, it's theologically thick with these things so that the church may 
deepen their faith in Christ. And during their times of suffering, they don't turn to sin, but instead they turn to their Savior. And so I think overall in First Peter, the greatest reminder that's trying to be said to us is that Jesus is our sure hope now, comma, and forever. Jesus is our sure hope now, comma, and forever. That this is not the end. And when we see things like what happened yesterday, or maybe even some things that may go on today, we can trust that this is not the end. And instead, we trust in Jesus that he's our sure hope now and forever. Forever, Hope should always be followed by a comma, never a period. It's not the end. Hope reminds us that this is not the end. Hope says that from the very start of this letter, Hope is saying, or Peter is saying, that he's proclaiming peace, that it can be obtained even in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of the season that you're in, maybe good or bad, a season of suffering or a season of blessedness, uh, still, hope can, can reign. Grace can reign. Peace can still be filling your hearts. And these are the things that we should be longing for. Peter doesn't, and neither does Christ, say, hey, I hope that you find happiness. Instead, he leaves us with peace. That's what he says. Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, and I believe Brian preached this last week. Zach was supposed to, but uh, some girls entered the world and did not bring peace, I don't think. Did they? Did they bring peace? Instead, we say Christ is the one that's going to bring peace through every season, no matter what it is. This letter was written to a diverse group of people, kind of like the people gathered this morning, a diverse group of people, not all the same, maybe having some similarities, but all of us from uh, different, uh, some, some differences, different origins, different ethnic roots, different languages even, different customs, different religions. And they were scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is today Turkey or Rome. And so we're looking at this from, from that perspective. It's important that we see this. That this is written to several churches scattered throughout. That they may have gathered under the name of Jesus, but now they're being they have been scattered out. And so let's read these two verses together. First Peter chapter one, verses one and two. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and to Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So these words we're trusting are not just words of good advice. It's just not, it's not just a hello statement, but these words are from God, breathed out by God through Peter as he wrote them down for us to even use today for our obedience to Jesus. This was written by Peter. Peter, uh, he proclaims himself or makes himself known. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, do you remember Peter from Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus said to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter's name means, somebody guess and say it out loud. Who said it? Rock. I, I, we'll, give you, we'll give you a sticker. Actually, your daughters have one. You can get a sticker from them. They gave me one just a moment ago. Peter's name means rock. And this is important for us to think about. Because later in his letter, he'll mention st a stumbling rock. We're hoping that Peter is not the stumbling rock. Though just a few verses, just a few moments after Jesus calls Peter the rock, verse 23 of Matthew 16, he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You're making a stumbling moment here. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, now he's writing. 
years removed from the resurrection of Christ. He's writing as a leader in the church, an apostle appointed by Christ to lead the church, to lead in the proclamation of Christ's teaching to the world, to lead in gospel sharing, gospel preaching, to lead in the change of the world. Now he's leading. He's making it known, hey, I'm Peter. He didn't call himself Simon. He said, hey, this is Peter, the rock, the one who Christ proclaimed the church is going to be built upon. He acknowledged his identity in Christ. And he says, an apostle, or an, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't just say the. He's recognizing himself in humility. He knows that there's others. He knows that he's not by himself. He's writing to encourage the church, to reassure them of his following of Jesus and their continued following of Jesus, to not give up Peter the rock. We're hoping that we also do not become a stumbling rock, that Christ wouldn't utter the words to us as an individual or as a corporate body of believers, that we might be a stumbling rock or a, a place of hindrance, but instead that we would, be, we would be pointing people to Jesus. We'd be pointing them in that direction so that they may have grace, so that they may be filled with peace, so that they may have the hope that Christ has given and Peter is proclaiming to us. He's not the only apostle. And he goes on to say, who is this letter to? To, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in these different places. So let's talk about this for a moment. What are exiles? Exiles are people who are just passing through. They're sojourning. They're strangers. They're visitors. They're not in a place that they belong. In this particular place, uh, Peter acknowledges them or writes to them as elect exiles. How can, in this case, in these places, they're not in places of Jewish reign, but instead they're in places of Gentile reign. So how can these Gentiles be like the Jews and be elect or chosen? How can they even be like the Jewish exiles? You have to put your minds to the things that we've studied before from the Old Testament. Peter is trying to focus the attention here that you people are like the exiles of old. You're like God's people because you have been adopted into Christ's family or God's family through the work of Jesus. And now you are one with Christ and his family. So we're talking about these exiles, that we too are the same. We are exiles. We are passing through this place. We are sojourning. We are strangers in a very strange place. And you feel this. You feel this when things, when brokenness rises to the top and mass shootings happen. You, you feel this inside you. This is not the place that I want to be. I want to be with Jesus. I want to be in heaven. I want to be in a perfect place. You feel that, and you say, why is this place broken? And that should be one of your reminders. This is not our home. We are strangers in this place. We are foreigners to this place. This is not this is not our home. The difference, though, Peter's trying to wrap our minds around or get our minds' attention to being in exile. The difference is in the Old Testament, the exiles were exiled, the Israelites were exiled because of their sin. And so we're seeing that Christ begins to reverse everything. So in the Old Testament, Israel was exiled or sent into captivity because of the rebellion, because of their sin. But now in the New Covenant... Because of what Christ has done in his reversing of the curse, the exiles are being exiled not because of their sin, but because of their Savior. They're being placed into a place of holiness, in a place of righteousness, 
The word holy means to set apart. You're no longer being set apart because of your sin. Somebody should be saying amen in a second. You're no longer being set apart because of your sin and in exile because of sin. But now you're being set apart and you're in exile because of your Savior. Thank you, Bill Boss. Because of being one in Christ. No longer exiles as a result of sin, but because of the work of Jesus, you are now exiles as the result of the completed work of Jesus. Peter is writing to believers as exiles, not because they are politically displaced from their homeland, but because they are suffering for their faith in Jesus in a world that finds their faith creepy, distasteful, hateful, objectionable, and strange. Does it sound familiar to our world today? People still find our faith in Jesus creepy. Drink this blood. Eat this body. That doesn't sound normal. They find it distasteful. Are you sure that we can be against these people or against these actions? They find us to be hateful. Are you sure that we can separate ourselves from the world and not say these things or act this way or be, uh, be um, accepting of these actions? They find us to be objectionable. And this is why even in our in the, in the land that we live in today, this is why many of our beliefs are put into court where objection is being found. Hey, we can't act this way. The Christians have for years been trying to act like this. We no longer want it to happen. And they find what we do strange. Why do they find it strange? Because we are not, this is not our home. We are nat- not native to this place any longer. Because now we are exiles because of what our Savior has done for us. Separating us, setting us apart in His holiness, clothing us in His righteousness, setting apart us for His, for His kingdom and for His service. Thomas Schreiner says, They are not aliens literally. They are sojourners because they are elected by God because their citizenship is in heaven rather than on earth. And so it should be the same for us that we should recognize that our citizenship is no longer on earth, but because of the work of Jesus, we are citizens of heaven. And so when we do see things like yesterday happen, and a mass shooting happen, we should be broken. It should stir in us an urgency to proclaim the excellencies of our sovereign God, to proclaim the excellencies of a God who knows all things, who has all power, who has already prepared and completed a rescue plan. We should be quick to say, this is not my home. Instead, I'm only passing through to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. A few years ago, I took a, a little trip, not on a rocket ship, but I took a little trip uh, overseas to a, 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 a southeastern Asian country, and I spent some time there, and then on, my, on our way back, we had a layover in Singapore. Uh, Singapore is like New York City, if you've ever been to New York City. I've never been to New York City but I've, but I've been to Singapore, and I feel like I will probably not make it to New York City anytime soon. And I had this layover in Singapore, and uh, and as we were leaving the airport, you have to go through customs uh, and uh, and say to the uh, customs official, hey, uh, I want to go into Singapore officially and spend some time here. And the gentleman asked me, uh, how long until your flight? And I said, we've got about six hours, so we want to go into the city. I just kind of explore for a moment, drink some good coffee, because that's what you do when you travel. Actually, that's what you do when you're at home too, right, Brad? Uh, you just drink coffee. And so the gentleman at the uh, customs counter who's about to st- stamp my passport said, you don't have enough time. You don't have enough time. You only have six hours. I'm like, oh, we're not going very far. 
Like I would much rather be outside in the city than just sitting here in the airport. He's like, but I'm saying there's so much to see. There's so much to see here that you could enjoy about our country, and you don't have enough time to see it all. And what did I say, sir? I'm sorry, but I'm just passing through. I don't want to live here. I just want to be here for six hours. So can I just stay here for six hours? And he just kind of, you know, put his head down, rolled his eyes, stamped my passport, and we went and spent, we spent six hours in Singapore. That's really how our mentality should be every day of life. Like if we truly understand our citizenship is in heaven, that Christ has adopted us into his family, that we are strangers and exiles in this place, that this place is not our home, then we can simply say, hey, I'm only here for six hours. Like I'm just kind of passing through. And, and while I'm here, I want to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus so that others can see what perfection looks like. You and I are elect exiles living as a part of the dispersion in these different earthly locations. We are set apart as righteous people, set apart as holy people, just passing through so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. So that we may say to people, our citizenship is in a different kingdom serving a risen, eternal king that will never fade, that will never die, that has paid the ultimate price. And because of that, I can live with peace. Because of the grace of Christ, we are exiles. Not because of works or performance or genetics. Peter's trying to remind the Gentile church of that. You are not exiles because you worked your way into the kingdom of God. You are not exiles because you performed perfectly. You are not exiles of the kingdom of God or members of the kingdom of God because of your genetics. Instead, you are a part of this kingdom because of what Christ has done for you, because of the completed work of Jesus. And and because of all this, because it's not just about genetics or our performance or our works, we can rest in Jesus. And then we can begin to counter the accepted cultural norms that we live in. And we can counter those with and live in the in accord with God's will. We can change who or what we are and become obedient to Christ our King and live in His kingdom because we understand that ultimately that is what brings grace and peace. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, these, these Israelites, these dispersed groups that are scattered throughout, dispersion or the people of dispersion means these scattered people. If you think about the churches that are gathered in these places, many of them were native to those towns. Well, I grew up here. I'm not being scattered. As members of the kingdom of God, you are scattered. You've been scattered throughout the world to proclaim Christ to the world. This mentality that Peter is trying to get to the churches here. You are part of, you are part of God's family. You've been adopted into this. And then you've been dispersed to go and share about Christ's kingdom, scattered throughout. The emphasis here, I believe, is on the adoption, the doctrine of adoption. That Christ has adopted us into his family and brought us to be a part of this. Not because, again, not because of genes or performance or works, but because of who God is, because of his grace to us. And then scattered us out. We gather weekly together as a corporate body of Christ. We gather on Sunday mornings and then we scatter sent people to go and proclaim the word to the world. And in our case, to Lovington. 
Peter wants his audience to hear the connection with the history of God's people. We too are connected with that because of what Christ has done, adopted into his family, a part of God's history, the ancient work that has been going on since ancient times. We are a part of that. And I think this is where hope begins, to see God's plan unfolding throughout history, to say that we're a part of an ancient work. We can have peace. We can say God is still in control. He's been in control since the beginning. He will continue to be in control to what we think may be the end. Hope in Jesus. Hope in the ancient work that he's been a part of. Because Jesus does have the power to reverse the curse. See, those people, again, were being dispersed in the Old Testament, like being exiled, like leading into captivity because of the rebellion. Maybe because of their sin. Maybe because of the sin around them and the pressures around them. And Jesus can come in and reverse that. You are not, as the, as the people belonging to God, being dispersed because of, necessarily because of persecution or suffering, but instead at the hand of God, that we might be moved into places to proclaim His excellencies. Peter preaches this. Paul preaches this. Acts 17 is a great sermon about this. That you've been placed in a time and a place for, for the kingdom of God, that we might be living as sent people, strangers in foreign land, exiles in a foreign place, proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. And with that, the pressure that mounts, saying, man, that's such a, a terrible job or, or a weighty job that we are placed in this place to proclaim Christ. We go back to the hope that we have in the ancient work. That God has been working, he will continue to work, and we are a part of this. And so we walk with peace. We walk with grace. We walk with hope that God is going to use us for his glory despite the suffering and the sin that seems to be around us. Because Jesus has the power to reverse the curse, he can also reverse the exile and reverse the dispersion. He can reverse our scattering and the pressure of scattering God's people because of sin. Instead, he can say, no, I'll use the scattering of God's people for my glory. I'll use the scattering of God's people to proclaim Christ throughout the entire world, the entire world so that the nations may bow at the name of Jesus, moving people, sending people, proclaiming his excellencies, to the world. I may be living in New Mexico, this land of enchantment, but I know wholeheartedly, Lee's going to hate this, I know wholeheartedly where I came from. I know where my roots are. I know wholeheartedly I'm Texan, indoctrinated by it, born with Texas diapers drinking the Texas milk, drinking the Texas sweet tea and watermelon and all those things. And you cross the board and people think you've got to put green, chi green chili in sweet tea or pouring some kind of chili stuff on watermelon. That ain't the way it works. And as enchanting as New Mexico may be, I can't help but quote the, the famous Greek term, Molan Labe, come and take it, because that's what's instilled in me as a Texan. And that passion that I have for you, like my second son who was born in Albuquerque, and I feel so bad about that. 
sorry, Rylan. I know I've said it before. As passionate as we can be about a state or a country or flags in Gonzales, Texas, they say, come and take it. As passionate as we can be about that, those things will fade. They will fade. They are fleeting. But Jesus has established a kingdom that will never fade. That will never end. And his flag says grace and peace. Okay. I got pretty excited about Texas and I'm sorry. To the dispersion, to the exiles of the dispersion in these places, scattered throughout. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. And I think in church, sometimes, especially in the Southern Baptist world, we become afraid of this word. The foreknowledge of God. Peter is not writing, he's not writing this to discourage the church. He's not writing these words to add fear to the church. He's writing to encourage and to bring hope to those who are following Jesus. So when we hear the word foreknowledge, it shouldn't bring fear, but instead it should bring peace. We have peace because we have a God who's in control. Now this is a cool word. We actually, this, this Greek word, foreknowledge, you use it all the time. We, we translate it directly into English. It's the Greek word prognosis. It means that you know something. You already knew something. You go to the doctor and say, hey doc, what's wrong with me? What's the prognosis? And the doctor says things like, well, after lengthy testing, after a lot of research, after consultation with other doctors, after the approval of your insurance, our prognosis is your Texan. That was a joke. <laughs> Thanks, Clay. We go to the doctor expecting the doctor just to know what's wrong with us. And what does the doctor have to do? Ask questions, seek consultation, lengthy testing, research, Google behind your back because they still don't know everything. <laughs> Approve it through your insurance company and then give you a prognosis. This is the opposite of who our God is. Isaiah 40.13, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? No one. He doesn't have to seek the counsel of men. He already knows He's known since he knew however long ago that was. He knows everything. He's not consulting anyone. He's not doing any kind of research. He's not blinded by anything. You can't go to him and him say, Oh, I don't know what's wrong with you. He already knows. Oh, I don't know what's right with you. He already knows those things. Jesus even talks about that in Matthew chapter 6 when he's teaching about praying. Go to your father, ask him these things. He already knows what you're going to ask. He knows these things. He is good at prognosing because he is God. And so with that, that should give us hope. God, you're, you're not just blindsided by things. God, you're not just totally unaware of what's happening in this world. But instead, you're acting according to your plan. You're acting according to your counsel. I can't give you counsel because I don't have your wisdom. Only you can give me counsel and wisdom, God. And so with that, let me live according to your plan. And in the suffering and the seasons of life that you go through, we tend, to, we tend to shy away from this. We tend to say, does he really know? Is he really aware? Does he really know what's going on? Lord, what's your prognosis? Do you understand what's going on? And maybe the Lord does give through his word to you. 
And you say, but maybe that applied to those people back then. Does it really apply to my life today? Well, I would say, like we preached in Isaiah 46, who created you? Who can carry the burden? Who can carry the weight of sin? Who made you? Isaiah 46.4. God is the one who does that. He doesn't need to seek your counsel. He already has counsel. And so because of that, we can trust in him according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And these short, there's three short statements here. The Trinity shows up according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. The Trinity shows up in this moment. God knows what's needed even before we ask. He knows the desperate state of the world that we're in. He knows the season that you're in. He knows the suffering or the blessedness that you're in. He created a rescue plan and has placed you smack dab in the middle to proclaim the excellencies of him who sent him to save. And in the midst of your season of suffering or blessedness or questioning, whatever the case may be, Christ knows. God has sent a rescue plan and we get to be a part of that as the church. The Trinity, the foreknowledge of God, God the Father. God knows what he's doing. He already knew. It was an ancient work that was going on, and we get to be a part of it. This is when we say these things. When we say uh, we, we praise you, God, for what you've done, for what you're doing, and what you're going to do, this is the ancient work. Uh, in this case, it shows up like this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, what he's done. He's had foreknowledge. In the sanctification, what does it say? In the sanctification of the Spirit. This is a current thing. This is not past work. This is current work. What's going on in your life right now? Not something in the past, but the current work of Christ through His Holy Spirit, what He is doing. This is what gives us hope. We hope in the past, the completed work of God, what He's done. We hope in the current, what He's currently doing through His Spirit in us and what He's going to do. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with the blood. This current work, sanctification, leading us to the future work of obedience to Christ. Your future work, meaning the next step that you take. That it would be an obedience to Christ because, Peter wraps it up in this, because of the shed blood of Jesus. Pointing our minds to the sacrifice, pointing our lives to the sacrifice of what Christ has done for us. The foreknowledge of God, what he's done, the sanctification of the Spirit, what he's doing, and in obedience to Christ, the sprinkling of the blood, what he's going to do. There's this guy named Alden Mills. He used to, he was a Navy SEAL for a long time. Uh, he's written several books. Uh, anyways, he, he trains SEAL team guys now even, and they have this statement in the SEAL team, Navy SEAL, uh, the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. The more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. I think it's an interesting statement because we don't even want to sweat in peace. Like peace doesn't mean sweating, right? Uh, we hiked a mountain just a few weeks ago and Emily said, uh, we got to the top and she's like, I'm sweaty, daddy. Like it would have been nice to hike up and not be sweaty. The more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. The more we're focusing in on Christ and our hope in him, in the midst of victory, when the war happens, whatever you think that may be, and the suffering happens, whatever you think that may be, you don't have to bleed because you're trusting in the bloodshed of Jesus. We're focusing on what Christ has already, has already done. 
I mean, this, this little, these two little verses, I think, are summed up by the final phrase. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How can we? We're dispersed. We're scattered. We're exiles. We're sojourners. We're suffering. We're doing all these things. How can we be having grace and peace? How can it even be multiplied to us? Grace, let me remind you, grace is God's, it's freely given to us. It's our undeserved favor. It's undeserved favor that God has freely given to us, his people. Every day we're recognizing that we're not deserving of the grace that he's given to us through the blood of Jesus, but yet he still gives it to us. And so we have hope and grace can be multiplied. And then peace, that no matter what the suffering or the season that I am, that I'm in, the sun is still raining. No matter the suffering or the season that I'm in, the sun is still raining. And the words echo from John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you from our Savior Jesus. From, from John chapter 16, verse 33. In this world you may have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome this world. We have peace because our Savior leaves it to us. Edmund Clowney says this. Peter writes for that very purpose, for the purpose of peace. Once he fought to defend the peace of the Messiah, Peter did. He tried to defend him under the olive trees in Gethsemane. He drew his sword to resist those who came to arrest Jesus. But Jesus had made him sheath his weapon after one misdirected stroke. Peter wanted to fight because he feared the death of Jesus. He feared that the death of Jesus would end all hope of victory, all hope of the Messiah's peace. But the death of Jesus had done the very opposite. It accomplished the salvation of God's anointed. And now Peter, the apostle of our risen Lord, can pronounce peace, the peace that comes not by the sword, but by the cross. And that is our hope today, that we would live constantly looking for these great occasions for hope. And though it may be moments of suffering, we still put our hope in Jesus. My favorite quote of all time comes from a guy named John Buchan. The charm of fishing is that it is the pursuit of what is elusive but attainable. It is a perpetual series of occasions for hope. Every time you cast, every time you cast out into the water as a fisherman, you think you're catching the largest fish of all time. I want to end with this. We're going to get to this in a few weeks. First Peter chapter four. No, First Peter chapter five. Verse 7 says this, and I'm doing a strong play on words here, all right? Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Daily occasions for hope in the midst of suffering, when things aren't going the way that you thought or expected them to go, we look for occasions of hope. We look for the moments where we see the Spirit working in us, 
We look for occasions where we see Christ's completed work and His shed blood for our lives. And we look for grace in those moments. We look for moments in our life in the seasons of suffering when we say God has been in control. He has foreknowledge. No one is going to give Him counsel because He does not need counsel. He is God. And so I trust in Him and I continue with hope. And then in that moment, we have peace. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the peace that we can have through Jesus. That we can cast our anxiety upon you. Maybe we're not even carrying anxiety, but we see the brokenness of the world and we wonder what's to happen. And in that moment, God, we want to trust in you. Trust in your peace. Trust in your words. That you have brought peace, you have left us peace in your son Jesus. And so for those in the room this morning, God, I pray that um, those who are confident in their identity in Christ, that they may help others. And those who are struggling and wrestling, particularly maybe during times of suffering, God, I pray that you would give this moment right now as a time of hope, that they would look to Christ and Christ alone, to the work that he did on the cross, to the work that he did in the grave, to the work that he's doing now in us, saving us, giving us life and hope of eternity. God, help us in this moment to respond to you in a way that glorifies you. That you may receive all honor. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.